The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Welcome to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCoon. I serve as pastor of Zion Church. We're a congregation of believers who trust in the simple message of God's sovereign grace, where families come together to worship God in spirit and in truth through the simplicity of preaching, praying, and singing. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. If you live in the Gordo area or if you are visiting in the area, please join us for worship. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. In today's message, we continue looking at Article 2 of the Articles of Faith of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. You may recall that Article 2 reads as follows. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and only rule of faith and practice. In the first couple of messages, we looked at the topic of divine inspiration, and we saw that the writers of the Old and New Testament were inspired by God to pen the words that they put down on the pages. But then we turned our thoughts to the topic of a divine preservation. Did God preserve his inspired word in some way? We first focused on divine preservation in general. That is, is the word of God preserved out there somewhere? But today, having dealt with the question of divine preservation in general, we turn our focus to the more specific question of which Bible can we rely on today? That is, which Bible translation is most accurate? Since we're English-speaking people, we're talking about the English translation of the Bible. Which English translation is the one that we ought to be using? Which English translation is the most reliable? I submit to you that the King James translation is the preserved Word of God in English. And there's some reasons I believe that. And that's the focus of the message today. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Yeah. 
know if you've been here that we've been preaching through the Articles of Faith of Zion Primitive Baptist Church that uh, were adopted on May 15th of 1847. And we've been on Article 2. Article 2 says, We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and only rule of faith and practice. In the first message on this Article of Faith, we talked about the subject of divine inspiration. The fact that we believe that God inspired the writing of this book that we call the Bible. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, we read that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And he tells us what it's profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, you'll notice that that's a pretty comprehensive list right there. And first of all, it says Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, in that Greek phrasing there, it means breathed out by God. It is God-breathed, okay? And it's profitable. Notice what it's profitable for. You know, when you, go to, when you go to the textbooks, you want to find a textbook that's going to guide you into whatever you're studying. If it's math and you need a good math textbook, if it's uh, chemistry, you need a good chemistry textbook. Well, here's a textbook for life. <laughs> this says it's profitable for doctrine. That's teaching. Okay, that, that tells us what the right way is. And then it's profitable for reproof. That's to tell us when we're off the, wrong, the right way. Then it's profitable for correction. That is to tell us how to get back on the right way. And it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. That's to tell us how to keep on the right way, how to stay on the right way. And the purpose is that we might be fully grown. We might be perfect. That is complete, not sinlessly perfect, because we won't make that goal in this life, but complete or whole and thoroughly furnished unto all good works to be able to do what we need to do to serve the Lord while we're here in this life. So it sounds like it's a pretty important book, a pretty important thing that this book be inspired by God. Well, we've covered that topic and we've seen where that God has divinely inspired the Word of God. But then the, the, the question arises, what is the Word of God? It would be kind of pointless, an exercise in futility, if God had inspired a word but had not preserved a word. So... Perhaps he inspired it back in his day when those writers were writing it down, but then it's lost to history. And all we have left is our own opinions or the opinions of men, and God had no role in preserving it. Well, we saw this morning the overall question. We didn't talk about, we talked a little bit about versions of the Bible, but primarily this morning our topic was the, the topic of divine preservation of the word that he had divinely inspired. So we have a word that is a result of divine inspiration, and we've seen both from the Bible itself, support for this principle that God divinely preserved what he divinely inspired. Psalm chapter 12 and verses six and seven in particularly is important. The words, not just the word in general, not just the big ideas, it's the words Thou, hast, thou shalt preserve them forever, he says, from this generation and forever. And we've seen biblical support for that. And then, just to make it clear, our, our ultimate determination 
of what we believe about the Word of God is a determination of faith. And I would be the last person to ever tell you that we ought to go anywhere but the Bible to find out what the truth is. In other words, I don't have to go to history and archaeology in order to make me be able to believe in the Scripture. But the beauty of it is this, is when we do go to history and we do go to archaeology, it does support what we believe about the divine preservation of this book. And again, I'm talking in general terms here that God has preserved. Remember what we said, there's 600, what was it, 643 copies of Homer, 643 copies of Homer that still exist today, his, his manuscripts, not the original manuscripts, but copies of Homer's work. None of the original manuscripts of any of these works, including the Bible, still survive. There's 643 copies of Homer that were written. The earliest ones we have began to be written uh, or go back to 400 years after his death. So 643 transcripts, the earliest of them is, is 400, four centuries after he died. We saw for the Greek New Testament alone, there's... There's 5,300 plus copies of the New Testament in Greek. This a 50 to 100 year gap after the death of the apostles who wrote it. Isn't that something? There's actually over seven, over uh, 24,000 ancient manuscripts that survive of the New Testament alone. About 5,000, 5,300 or so in Greek, 10,000 or so in Latin, and 9,000 in other languages. And we saw where so many. Others of these ancient writings just have a few copies, and they're years, centuries after they lived. But the New Testament sources are within a hundred years of when the New Testament was written. We saw that. We also looked at the opinions of some ancient writers, how that they referred, like Tertullian referred to the original letters still being in some of those churches that they were written to. Irenaeus, who was who lived in the mid one hundreds. He he believed he referenced a personal copy that he had or a copy that he had personally seen of the book of Revelation in some of his writings and so forth. And ultimately we saw that that we have more evidence for the reliability of the scriptures than we do of any other ancient writing. Okay. Now, tonight I want us to ask the question. You remember the first question was, do we have anything that we can rely on? And tonight the question is, which of these translations can we rely on? In other words, which translation is most accurate? I believe we can be confident that we have the Bible in English. And I believe it's found here in this King James Version that we have, the authorized version. Let, let, me, let me say one other thing. You may just say, time out, preacher. Why is this important? Why is this important? Well, it's important because we do believe the Word of God, is inspired by God and is the, you notice what else that, that article of faith said? It's the only rule of faith and practice. See, the Word of God ought to be what informs our faith, our doctrine here at this church. The Word of God is what we found our faith upon. The Word of God is what we found our practice upon. And if there is no preserved Word of God, then we have nothing that we can really rely on to say this is what we ought to be doing or this is what we ought to be believing. And if God didn't preserve His Word, then we got, we got problems, right? We got problems. Because then, then we come back to these, 
these things that we call the Bible, that we call Scripture, are just writings that, that we can accept or reject. And so we need to have some confidence. That's my purpose in this, in this sermon series, is to give us some confidence in what we have. And we said this morning this, and I want to go back to it. There's three things you need to look at when you're determining which version of the Scripture you believe is the most reliable. And that's the manuscripts that were used by the translators, the methodology the translators employed, and the motives of the translators as they translated. So, let's look at the manuscripts that were used. There were two different manuscript sources from which the King James Version came from versus all other translations. The Textus Receptus line of manuscripts, also known as the Antioch or the Byzantine line of manuscripts. They originated primarily in Antioch there in Syria. And then the Alexandrian line of manuscripts, which as it sounds, they originated in Alexandria. The King James translation used what's commonly known as the Textus Receptus, the received text line of Greek manuscripts. I said already that it's the, uh, also called the Antioch or the Byzantine line of text. At one time it was called the majority text. I, I, I'm careful about that term now because today the majority text often refers to what the majority of scholars believe is the correct text. So be careful about that. Used to you could say the majority text and everybody knew you were talking about the Textus Receptus. But based on my, my studies and my, my research, that's not the case necessarily anymore. Uh, and by the way, that changes, see, every time a new text is discovered. Every time a new little fragment is found here or a, a codex is found there, then that changes. And it's, and it's not, by the way, you add them all up and whatever the majority is what of the text is what rules. It's whatever the majority of the scholars think. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I trust scholars today. So where does the... Where does the the Textus Receptus originate. In general, the Textus Receptus or Antioch line of texts originated with Lucian of Antioch, who was born around 240 in, in, in Syria, which is modern day Turkey. He originated a theological tradition at Antioch that was noted for biblical and linguistic scholarship. In other words, he was, it was important to him to, to take the Greek text of both the Old and New Testaments, the Old Testament being Hebrew, of course, and the Greek text of the New Testament, and he, he created a tradition of manuscripts known as the Lucianic Byzantine or Syrian text. Until the development of the 19th century textual criticism approach to the evaluation of biblical manuscripts, which I'll mention shortly, this approach to the text was the primary approach, and it made it the common text, okay? So from the Encyclopedia Britannica, which... Uh, confirmed some other research I, I had done. Notice that what it, it says here. He says, by comparative study of the Greek and Hebrew grammatical styles and their Semitic background, Lucian proposed to limit the symbological interpretation characteristic of the Alexandrian or Egyptian allegorical tradition by emphasizing the primacy of the literal sense, whether expressed directly or metaphorically. Okay, all that's saying is this. He tried to take the text as it was and, and literally transcribe it and not make some kind of allegorical approach to it, some kind of symbolic approach. That's going to be important in a few minutes when we talk about the methodology because in the modern translations today, there's more of an approach to, well, we're not going to take the literal 
meaning, or we're not going to take those literal words and do a word-by-word -word translation. We're going to kind of put it into modern English and modern thoughts, and we're going to change it a little bit in order to make it make sense in modern English. That's, that's kind of the approach they have now. I want to say to you, I don't believe that, <laughs> that, the, that the, the, the approach of, of saying, well, we're going to modify it to make it sound better in English preserves the literal sense of what God breathed into those old apostolic fathers who wrote these letters. But be that as it may, Lucian began this tradition by, by saying, I'm going to take it literally, and I'm going to approach it literally and try to transcribe it true to the original text. And that's where the Antioch text line really got its name and got its, uh, its beginning. Now, I'll say this too. There's, there's evidence that that other uh, areas besides Antioch carried on a literal biblical transcription tradition. <laughs> in other words, there's other in, in the north, north Italy and in Gaul and places like that, there were, there were copies of Greek New Testament texts that were passed around. And, and we're going to see there was a group called the Waldensians, the Waldensians. Who, uh, who had, a, had a text that was preserved down through the years and passed on that is along this same line. And by the way, notice what happened to Lucian of Antioch. In the early 4th century, under persecution by the Roman emperor Maximinus, he was martyred, he was, he was tortured and starved to death for refusing to eat meat ritually offered to the Roman gods. That doesn't sound like somebody who has a hidden agenda to me. It sounds like somebody who believed what he was standing up for. Now, I'm going to skip over several centuries of history because I don't want this to become just a history class and just say that in the 1500s, 1516 to be exact, Desiderius Erasmus produced a Greek New Testament that was primarily, it went through a couple of revisions, but was primarily based on this Textus Receptus, this, this line of text that, that began over there with Lucian of Antioch. And he, these manuscripts that he depended upon had dominated the church's manuscripts down through the centuries. One other thing I want to say about that, notice the time frame, 1516. You may not remember this, from your history classes, some of you may remember what happened in 1517. What happened in 1517 is that a man named Martin Luther marched up to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and tacked his 95 theses to the door, and thus began what we call the Reformation today. Luther was Catholic. Luther came out of the Roman church. Luther was a, was a priest. Luther ended up becoming the founder of the Protestant movement. Okay, But there were many things in Luther's theology that you and I would agree with. We wouldn't agree with all of them. But what a, what a um, confluence of providential occurrences. Uh, there had been others in, in previous centuries that had tried to rebel against the Roman uh, practices that had become corrupt there, the Roman church that had become corrupt. They were selling indulgences. They were, they were coming to, uh, uh, to their parishioners and saying, okay, uh, if you've got people that are burning in purgatory today because they didn't do what they ought to do, if you'll buy these indulgences, we'll get them out of purgatory. <laughs> 
That's, that's a great way to raise money. I think if I thought daddy was burning in purgatory today and I could pay $1,000 or even $10,000 to get him out, I'd pay it. <laughs> but it had become a corrupt system. And, and there's a whole lot more there I could say. I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to uh, uh, go into a whole lot of Roman Catholic history, but I just, just understand that by the time of Luther, there was a lot of corruption in that Roman church. And Luther did the right thing by coming out of it. He did the right thing by, by starting that Reformation. I believe God was in that. Because ultimately it helped preserve some old Anabaptists from, from otherwise being persecuted, even though Luther and Calvin and some others were also persecutors of the Anabaptists. Remember this too, we said this the other day. Child of God, Baptists are not Protestants. The Baptists did not come out of that movement. In fact, both Luther and the Catholics uh, bishops that were involved in the Counter-Reformation affirmed the fact that there were what they call Anabaptists in existence down through the centuries of time. Anabaptist means rebaptizer. And the point is that they didn't accept the infant baptism of the Catholic Church. They only, they only believed in believers' baptism. And so if you came to one of their churches and wanted to join it, even though you might have been baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church, they said, no, you're going to have to be rebaptized. Thus, they were called Anabaptists. Luther, after he started this Reformation, put out a German Bible. You know, that was a big deal, by the way, because up to that point, the Catholic Church had restricted access to the Word of God to just the priests. They wouldn't allow the layman, the congregation, if you went to a Catholic church in that day, you would not have been allowed to have a Bible. And it certainly wouldn't have had a Bible. Even if you had had a, access to the Bible, it was written in Latin. And in those days, if you were German or if you were French, most of, most of the French and German and other populations couldn't speak Latin. So it was forbidden for a Bible to be published in the vernacular of the common people. But oh, in fact, John Huss and John Wycliffe and others who had lived before Luther were burned at the stake for doing that. Wycliffe tried to, tried to publish a, a Bible, that uh, the Wycliffe Bible. He did publish it, but he was burned at the stake for doing it. William Tyndale was burned at the stake for doing the same thing up in England. But in Luther's day, the providence of God prevailed as it always does and it was providentially time for that. Luther published a German Bible, and it was based upon Erasmus, Greek New Testament, which was based upon this Textus Receptus. Here's my point. This manuscript line was the manuscript of the Reformation. It was a manuscript of those reformers, John Calvin and John, uh, Martin Luther and others, who, who had such an impact upon upon the history of the church, okay? And I'm talking about the history of our Baptist church, not directly, but indirectly, by freeing up the religious uh, movements of that day. Now, I want to I I step aside from the Reformation for a moment and the Protestant movement. And I want to take you back to another heretical movement. It was called a heretical movement, okay, by the Catholic Church. But I, I want us to see <laughs> what we think about whether it was a heretical movement, whether it was heresy or not. 
In the 1100s, there was a man named Peter Waldo, or Peter, Peter Valdez in his native language. In 1173, he gave up all his worldly goods, and he began to wander about as a preacher, preaching the grace of God. Now, this group of people was called the Waldensians, or Waldenses, by the Roman Catholic Church and by the people of that day. But there's clear evidence from the research I've done and from historical writings that while Waldo may have given them their name, this group existed long before Waldo. He preached from about 1170 to 1176 in France. And, and this is interesting, and as, as you begin to study it, you find that one of the problems that the ecclesiastical or religious authorities had with him was number one, his lack of theological training, but number two, his use of a non-Latin version of the Bible. Wait a minute now. Let's go back. We're going to see in a minute with the Alexandrian line of text that that Latin Vulgate that Jerome ultimately produced and it became the standard and uh, pretty much only Bible of the Roman Catholic Church for, for centuries was the only authorized version of the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church ever, ever let out, ever, ever gave. And yet we find that this man somehow had a Bible that was a non-Latin version of the Bible. Now, <laughs> listen, to, listen to his beliefs. Now, I, I think if we looked at every detail of his beliefs, we might not agree with every one of them. But this in general is what the followers of Waldo, Waldensians, believed. They rejected some of the seven sacraments. They didn't believe a priest was necessary as an intermediary between man and God, which was a principle of the Catholic Church. They rejected the use of indulgences. They believed that baptism was to be full immersion in water. Hmm. They rejected infant baptism. They denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. That is the doctrine that when you take the communion, that communion bread and wine actually becomes the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, literally. They rejected the notion of purgatory and prayers offered for the dead. They accepted the Bible as the sole total authority of all doctrine. They believed a formal church building was not necessary to worship God. They insisted on a literal interpretation of the Bible and insisted on the right to read the Bible for themselves. Now, time out. If they insisted on the right to read the Bible for themselves, they must have had a Bible, right? <laughs> they weren't talking about something fictional. They weren't talking about something theoretical. Oh, I really insist on, I'm going to die for the right to read the Bible. Where's the Bible? Well, I don't know where it is. <laughs> you know, I'm going to die for it. I'm no, they must have had a Bible. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does any of that sound familiar? <laughs> I went through our, our, our articles of faith and so many of those are the same. That reminds me of something. It reminds me of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. It reminds me of many Baptist churches down through the years. You know, the word primitive Baptist didn't come into being until the early 1800s. Prior to that, it was just Baptist. Uh, they might have been called particular Baptist or general Baptist in the 1800s and 1700s. But, but it, what I'm saying to you is the Anabaptists weren't divided up into different names. The Baptists were Baptists. This sounds like a Baptist to me. This man sounds like a rebaptizer to me. And by the way, the reformers 
in the 1500s. That's the Luthers and the Calvins and others, Zwingli and others who were part of the Reformation. They believed that the group that was called the Waldensians actually predated Waldo. I took this from a man named ben, Benjamin Wilkinson. And by the way, he, he's a, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. He wasn't a Baptist or uh, a primitive Baptist or anything like that. But, uh, but, you know, there are some things, there are some writings out there that are pretty good that you can get some information from regardless of the person's background. This is what he said in his 1930 work called Our Authorized Bible Vindicated. The Waldenses of northern Italy were foremost among the primitive Christians of Europe in their resistance to the papacy. They not only sustained the weight of Rome's oppression, but they were successful in retaining the torch of truth until the Reformation took it from their hands and held it aloft to the world. Veritably, they fulfilled the prophecy in Revelation concerning the church which fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. They rejected the mysterious doctrines, the hierarchical priesthood, and the worldly titles of Rome while they clung to the simplicity of the Bible. In another passage in that same book, and that was page 20, but in this other passage in the same book, I won't read it all because it's pretty long, but I, I want to share some of it with you. He says, The reformers held that the Waldensian church was formed about 120 A.D., from which date on they passed down from father to son the teachings they received from the apostles. The Latin Bible, not talking about the Vulgate, which was the basis of the Roman Catholic Church, but the Latin Bible, the Italic Bible, was translated from the Greek not later than 157 A.D., and he has a citation there. We are indebted to uh, Beza, the renowned associate of Calvin, for the statement that the Italic Church dates from 120 A.D. You notice what he's saying here, is that those Waldensians, which are named for a man in 1170 or so A.D., actually existed as far back as 120 A.D. And, uh, and he talks about the fact that, uh, that, that they had a Bible that had been translated from the originals into Latin that far back. Now listen to what Mr. Wilkinson wrote about where that Bible came from. Down through the centuries, there were only two streams of manuscripts. The first stream, which carried the received text in Hebrew and Greek. That's the Textus Receptus, by the way. Anyway, continuing on with Mr. Wilkinson's quote. Again, with the apostolic churches and reappearing at intervals down the Christian era among enlightened believers was protected by the wisdom and scholarship of the pure church in her different phases. By such is the church at Pella in Palestine, where the Christians fled, when in 70 A.D. the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. By the Syrian church of Antioch, which produced eminent scholarship. By the Italic church in northern Italy. And also at the same time by the Gallic church in southern France and by the Celtic church in Great Britain. By the pre-Waldensian, the Waldensian, and the churches of the Reformation. This first stream appears with very little change in the Protestant Bibles of many languages. Now notice what he says about the lineage of these, this set of texts. This first stream appears with very little change in the Protestant Bibles of many languages. And in English, in that Bible known as the King James Version, the one which has been in use for 300 years in the English-speaking world. What Mr. Wilkinson is telling us is that the line of the Textus Receptus 
began all the way back in the first and second century, actually the second century A.D., and in places like the Valdois Valley, where the Waldensians originated, and where the predecessors of John Waldo were, all through those years, with a, their own Bible that was translated from the, the pure manuscripts, those that were written by the apostles, they had that Bible then, and that's the line that ended up being the basis for the King James Version. You see, the existence of this Waldensian Bible is important circumstantial proof of the existence of a manuscript known as the Textus Receptus, which was accepted by those churches that never came under the domination of the Roman church. And this line of manuscripts existed down through the ages of time until the King James translators got hold of it. So I could go on and on about this, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we don't have time. But just I encourage you to do your own research about this. But let me just say this to you. The King James Bible is based upon those, that line of, of text that we know as the Textus Receptus. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J. C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.